And Dominion Fire 360 is on, my friends. Million here with you. M-I-L-L-I-A-N, your ministry provocateur, iconoclast, firebrand, and the resident heretic here at Dominion Fire, bringing you information that you need to know. And whenever you get into ministry, you always want to try to be able to relate to people, right? If you've come from a certain background, that's generally who you kind of reach out to because, you know, you've been there, done it, you can kind of relate, and you can get people kind of into the whole idea of faith and changing their life around because, you know, you've been there and done it. Now, a lot of people in this world have been there, done a lot of things, but my guest today, he's got an incredible story to tell and you're going to love hearing all this. You want to talk about being there and doing it all and, you know, having the t-shirt to to prove it. Joining me today from Carlsbad, New Mexico, from David and Kathy Ministries is David Thomas. David, welcome to 360. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. So it's it's pretty safe to say you've been there and done it then? Is that what we're getting at? Absolutely. My wife kids with me. She says I've had more lives than a cat. So I've lived many lives. You know, I've got on my dedication page of my book, I actually go into a little bit of detail. Maybe we can get into that a little bit later. But I definitely have worn many shirts, worn many shoes, been in many situations. And uh, I can testify to lots of situations. So yes, sir. The good part about it all is that us that are like in ministry and of Christian belief, we know that God can basically fix anything. There's nothing too far out of his reach. We want to hear the full dirty details of everything. So let's start at the beginning. You, It started for you even at a real young age with a whole big mess in your life. So let's start with your background experience, where you came from, how this all came together, and just walk us through everything, man. You know, the expression, so-and-so was born with a golden spoon in their mouth. Well, that's not my situation. I was actually born with a chain around my neck. I was born into a lie. My mother was a single mother. Um, She babysat for her youth group leader, which is my father. My mother had a relationship with him, had me and my little sister. So our last name was made up, and my mom just went with it and did the best she could as a single parent, not wanting anybody in the church to know whose son I was. Um, It was a big deal for her a sense of insecurity, and it was a rough being young like that, you know, not knowing who my father was. She didn't tell me until I was much older, about 13 or 14, when we started calling the names she gave us of my father in the phone book, and so we were trying to find who our dad was. But um, needless to say, uh, I had a, some good grandparents that kept us in church. My grandfather was a God-fearing man. He loved the Lord, and, you know, I aspired to be like him someday or following his footsteps. However, at the age of six, my mother was physically abusive with us in the beginning of our childhood, so it was kind of rough for us. She would be working, and so we'd just be sent here or there. But I was molested at six years old, something that started happening almost on a regular basis. I would stay with my grandparents and stuff at night because she worked night shift. And so my grandparents, my mom wanted to give them a break. People started to babysit us. I started being molested, I guess it was about eight, there. So my life, at a very young age, was already messed up. I was born actually left-handed. In kindergarten, they made me right-handed. So I had a learning disability. They didn't know what was wrong with me until fourth grade, why I could not understand what they were trying to teach me. And so I was going through all these things. The molestation happened until age 16. When I was old enough to say, that's not what I wanted, 
you know, old enough to stay by myself with my sister, you know, my mom worked. So that had stopped, but the damage was already done. It's hard to understand something like that that happens to you. I think we live in a day and age where there's so many people that they find their identity in that lifestyle. When you get down to the bottom of all of that, you know that I have found in myself that that's not who I am. I will go more into it, but that's a topic that in this day and age, like I said, it's so acceptable. It's a popular thing. And I think that a lot of people, things have happened to them when they're younger. So they believe that's who they are. They take on that identity. And that's what I did. At age 16, trying to understand all that was happening to me, had happened to me, I searched to try to find acceptance, to try to, to be loved. And of course, I started drinking, did drugs, got arrested when I was 18 for marijuana, went to jail on the weekends. I was still in high school, barely graduated. I had to go to alternative school, got kicked out of school. I was in jail. I was 18. I got raped in jail. So I had a lot going on. When I speak right now, I'm speaking from my heart. And there's some stuff that's sensitive to me still today. You know, to thank God for his grace and his mercy that, you know, he sees us where we're at. He saw me then. I turned 21. My life was chaotic. I uh, was shooting up meth by age 18. Just my life was just in a downward spiral. I mean, every the devil was just there everywhere. It didn't matter. I was trying to run from the things that happened to me and those thoughts that was happening because I was attracted to the same sex because of the things that happened to me as a child. Now, I had girlfriends in high school, and I actually have a child that I've never seen or anything with the girl that I got pregnant in high school. So I, it wasn't that I was just thought I was totally gay. It's just that thought was in my mind that those things that happened to me. So. I went through that, you know, trying to mask all that. But at age 21, like I said, on April Fool's, I decided, well, I'm going to move to Dallas to see if I can find love, to see if I can get away from the drugs, to see if I can change my life. So I moved to Dallas. Very first thing I did, I drove to Cedar Springs, which is a gay community in Dallas, went into a gay bar, got on a pool table, and entered a wet boxer contest. I mean, it was just crazy how that happened because I was trying to go to a place where I could leave that stuff behind. But, you know, you can only run so far and it's going to catch up to you. And what happened with me is it caught up seven times worse. And my life just became so chaotic. I was doing gay porn. I was selling my body. I was uh, actually hustling on the street to get money. And then the money, I'd buy the drugs. And then the drugs would be gone. So I'd go and do what I had to do to get the money to get the drugs. So it was a vicious cycle. It, never, it seemed like I could never get a break. I got with a guy. He was an alcoholic. It was a terrible relationship. He was very abusive. We beat each other up all the time. He was always drunk. We were doing meth, selling meth, dancing in the clubs, stripping in the clubs. I've even done gay porn. You know, I've done some things that people ask me now, are you ashamed of that? No, I'm not, because it made me who I am today. And, you know, God's delivered me from that. You know, it took many years, but I'll get back to that. That was three years with this guy. After him, I tried to live on my own for a little bit. I picked up a, a charge. I got into a fight with a guy and made a threat against him. So I got on probation, and I did really good. I was being on probation for like three years. 
And I was two years and 11 months into almost finishing. And I got on drugs really, really bad. Crack, meth, anything I could do to escape who I was or thought I was. What happened was I ran for six years from the law. I lived in Dallas. I met a guy that was with the, he was a, a drug lord in the community of Cedar Springs, the gay community I was telling you about. And he was with the Mexican mafia. I was in a relationship with him for five years. We supplied the club in Dallas with cocaine. We were silent partners in a bar there where we were able to sell our drugs and without getting arrested or with a DA or none of those people could touch us when we were in that club. So we're making all this money. We had houses. We had a couple houses, boat, an RV, cars, designer clothes, anything we wanted we have. But the one thing I didn't have was happiness. I was so miserable in my skin. And all I could think about was dying. I wanted, I just wanted something better. And this went on for five years and it just got worse and worse. I started stealing cocaine from them. Instead of trying to confront me on it, they would do things. For an instance, we were at a party. I took a drink. My appendix exploded. They had poisoned me. I had to go and get my appendix removed. At the end of this, now this is going on for five years. You know, my life is miserable. I can't even stand to be in my skin. And I just, all I wanted was to be dead. You know, I had really got myself into a situation where there was no way out. You know, in the mafia, the, there's two ways out, either death or prison. And so my thought was, you know, if I could just die, then I could get out. And it was just crazy. It was a lot of drama. We were actually like club legends. Everybody knew who we were, what we did. There was a magazine that came out in the gay community. Like, I think it was every bi-weekly or something like that. Every episode there we were, you know, they had a section club land. There's our picture. You know, and this was going on the whole time we were together. I don't know how many times we were in that magazine, but it was very living on the edge, really. We got to a point to where this guy committed me to a mental institution, ecstasy. We started selling ecstasy. I got really bad on that. It really messed with my health. I became very delusional, seeing things that weren't there, stuff like that. And so I was living this crazy life. And, you know, the title of my book is I Lived a Lie. And, you know, that's the lie that I was believing, that that's who I was. Christmas Eve in 2005, I uh, decided that, that my only way out was to commit suicide. So I got a video camera and I started filming it. And I took a couple bottles of pills, of pain medication and sight meds. And there was a lot of pills. I can remember I called my mom. I said, Mom, I, I took all these pills, what I need to do. And she said, call the ambulance. So I called the ambulance and I went on my front porch. I actually died on my front porch. We lived actually in the community. So on my front porch, the ambulance came. They uh, shot me once, you know, to get a pulse. Nothing. Shot me again. They got a pulse. So I was spending the next seven days in a coma. Thank God for a praying mother. Because my mother... Ask God to give you another chance. And so he did. I'm here today. Coming out of that coma, I, I finally was like, you know, I've got to get out of this. I've got to leave this behind. So I moved back to New Mexico. And I lived with my mom for a little bit. Got a job. Was working. 
had a good life. Well, I got pulled over by the cops. But the thing is, is when I moved back to New Mexico, I left that lifestyle and the drugs behind. And so I was getting a fresh new start. I was here in Carlsbad for six months when I got pulled over by the cops and got extradited on the charge I was telling you about. So I spent three years in prison. In prison, in the, in the beginning of it, it was really hard for me. You know, I was blaming God. I was blaming everybody but myself, not taking responsibility for what I had done. I was in a prison. They tried to move me close to home, which they moved me to La Mesa, the Smith unit in La Mesa. And that's kind of close to Carlsbad. And actually, my wife and I have had the opportunity to do two prison crusades there, which was really awesome because I told God once I got out of there, I'd never be back. But, you know, God has a sense of humor. He sends you back in. But he sent me back in better than when I left there. So thank God for that. But it was a higher level of security. I had a hit put out on my life. So they extradited me Easter weekend in 2007. They took me to this transit prison up by Huntsville somewhere. And this, this place, I've been in prison. I've been in and out of jail all my life. I've never been in prison, but uh, I've been at different prisons, you know what I'm saying, but to serve my whole sentence. And during transit, this prison, I'd never seen anything like it. It was like six stories high, so dark. And there was just demonic presence amongst me. It was loud. It was just so crazy. It's just a demonic place. It felt like hell. On Good Friday, you know, you can't travel during a holiday, so you have to stay at a transit. So I stayed there on Friday, and the devil's just lying to me, and it's getting louder, and it's getting worse, and there's the devil's hissing at me that uh, God hates me. Why don't I end my life? Why don't I put an end to this? And, you know, my mind's going through all of the things that I've been through in my life. And here I am. I've got nobody. got nothing. In the midst of all the chaos, I decided on Easter Sunday, it was later in the afternoon, I took a razor blade and I decided I, I was, it wasn't worth me to live. I had no purpose that God didn't love me, that nobody loved me. I was all wrong. And so I took a razor blade and started cutting my wrist, started cutting my jugular vein just viciously. I'm fading in and out of life. And this peace came over me. I, I can't even describe it. I've never experienced anything like it. And I heard the voice of God for the first time in my life say, David, why are you trying to end when I'm trying to begin? Bleeding out in that cell, I said, Jesus, I surrender. I need you in my life. Show me how to live for you. I need you. And I promise you, if you will be with me through the rest of the sentence, I will go to the Los Angeles Dream Center and learn how to live for you. I'd heard about the Los Angeles Dream Center, which is a, a phenomenal place of restoration and healing and just an awesome place. The, the discipleship program, they have many things there. Uh, sex traffic floor, veterans floor, homeless floor, family floor, you name it, they have it. And it, it was a awesome opportunity to get to go there. Three months after I got, I actually got out of jail July 4th, 2009. And three months later, I, I took a month off for every year I was in. So three months later, I went into discipleship program. And when I got there, I was like, oh no, I just got out of prison. I can't handle this. You know, they're very strict when you first get there and stuff. But God started to work on me. I started taking classes and 
I learned that God did love me and that I was worth being loved, you know, that he had died for all that stuff I'd done in my past. And one of the things I felt even during the time that God was starting to heal me, you know, I, I like to say he was my cellmate in prison because he literally was. I got into my word in prison. I, I started praying and I started asking, you know, for forgiveness. But when I got out, I knew I wasn't gay. I knew I wasn't gay, and I knew that that was a lie that the enemy had told me. So many times, people that think that they are gay go through it, and they they follow through and sin, and they act out on that temptation, and they stay stuck. Instead of asking for forgiveness, getting on your feet, and keep moving forward, people get stuck. But the thing is, no one gets anything out of this today, I want to say. There's a process to your purpose. It took nine years. For me to totally be delivered from that lifestyle i would do good for three months and then boom i was right back in it and i'd do good for a week boom i'd be back in it but i kept getting up we kept asking for forgiveness for god to take that from me he does deliver it does take time and i know some people god just delivers them and boom that's it but for me and for most of us it's a process if anything just don't give up just keep moving forward in that so I was in discipleship. I graduated my first year. I stayed a second year, worked in the administrative office, did some intake, really liked what I was doing. I was succeeding in life. I was, I felt loved. I was learning how to live for the Lord. I uh, one day decided the program, God was, everybody was moving on from the program and into ministry and I wasn't doing anything. And so I just felt like, the program wasn't working anymore. I walked down. I go, it's right by Sunset Boulevard. And so I walked down Sunset Boulevard. There's a guy with a meth pipe. And so I throw my meth pipe and got stuck two years homeless in L.A., in and out of jail, got two or three possession charges of meth. I got about 140 pounds. I was living on the beach. I had a storage unit. I would ride my bike to the storage unit put my bike on a bus and go out to the ocean and just be out there all on drugs and delusional. And I jump off the buses and get paranoid. And there's a time or two, the cops would be called that somebody was being murdered and they were going to the park and it would be me there. And I, I really just believe the demons were just attacking me. You know, when you're on meth the way I was, you become delusional when you don't sleep for seven or eight days. And so I would go under the Hollywood freeway and smoke my dope. And my dealer lived right there in Hollywood Hills. And what's so crazy is my dealer was actually went to high school with me here in Carlsbad. And so, you know, the enemy will do anything he can to get you to be dead in your sin. God was really there with me the whole time. I can't even remember where I laid my head. My body would just give out. And then wherever it gave out, then that's where I slept. And then I'd get up and do the same thing over and over and over again. During this time, God was really there for me and he was speaking to me. And I know that may sound silly, but it's true. You know, he said, I want you to tell your story. And I thought, well, that's, I thought nobody wants to hear my story. We got in LA. I was going to go back into the dream center. I, I went and got a bunch of dope, uh, meth, and I did it all in the motel room, got a motel room and, 
did all that dope, and I was going to go into the Dream Center. So I went up to the Dream Center, and they said, you have to wait two weeks. I couldn't wait two weeks. I knew I was either going to die out there on the streets or be put in prison. And so I uh, called my mom. I was like, Mom, I need to come home. I came home. I got off the drugs. I went through the worst withdrawals I've ever gone through. I got off of the, I relapsed a couple times in the first year, but I finally got my act together and I met my wife on Facebook. My wife is actually from Carlsbad. She's living in Branson, Missouri. Her family knew my family. My family knew her family. Her friends knew my friends. My friends knew her friends, but we didn't know each other. And I, I seen her picture on Facebook and I was like, oh, wow. You know, and um, I, I asked God, I said, God, I don't want to, ever have a thought if this is a girl i'm going to marry i don't ever want to have another thought towards an, a man that i have in the past i would not want to hurt her like that and he delivered me from that totally delivered i fasted i was in my word he delivered me from that so i asked her to bury me on november the 23rd the day before thanksgiving during that time before we got married we would talk on the phone we dated about a year or so and talked to each other all day but God said, I have something for you. I want to show you what it is to be loved. I never experienced love. I knew the love of God, yes. But I never experienced, I've always loved people, but I've never felt loved by anybody. And she encouraged me to write my story. She encouraged me, inspired me to tell my story, to do what God had asked me to do. If it wasn't for her, the book probably never would have gotten written. But it got wrote. And so we met face to face for the first time, August 28th, I believe it was. Three weeks later, we got married. Everything was great, but we brought some baggage into our lives, into our marriage. And so we got divorced after four months, got remarried on National Prayer Day. God separated us, worked on us as individuals. And once we came back together, we got married on National Prayer Day in 2018. And so when we came back together, God started to just uh, pour into uh, our ministries. Uh, we were going into the jails and the prisons and the rehabs. And anybody that would have us, we were there, the churches. Um, so we had the opportunity to let God pour into us. And that's pretty much it, you know, up to now. And, you know, we had the pandemic. We became nonprofit in 2020, had the pandemic. Things kind of slow down, but they're starting to open back up and pick back up. So praise God for that. So that's just about it in a nutshell. You know, after that story, I need a sandwich and a nap. That's how much. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, bro. I, I, you know, I knew based on what I was reading and what you, we talked about that. Yeah, you've been there and done it all. And now I'm hearing the full story, like the full, full story. I'm like, oh, my goodness, bro. (laughs) Okay. It's so, a mouthful. <laughs> aye, aye, aye. All right. So I got a whole bunch of questions here for you. Just want to f- go back and fill in some blanks just so I understand where this uh, originated from, where it all came from in- as well. You had mentioned you were molested around six years old. And what you said that was like a temporary thing. Did that on go for years or like? No, no. It was six to 16. Now, it wasn't oh. an adult, but it was. It was people, it was not an adult. It was guys that were my age or a couple of years older. It started with a cousin, I only have one cousin, and he had a stepbrother 
that molested him. And I think that those are learned behaviors, I feel. And I think that when that's done to you, then that's what you do. You know, that's a learned behavior. Now, I did not do that to anyone. That was done to me because I did not necessarily like it. I didn't understand it. It's a turmoil that you go through because you don't, you can't really tell anybody. You don't want to get no one in trouble. You don't know if, if that's the way that it is, if that's the way you're supposed to do things or that's the way you're supposed to feel. It's very confusing. And if I understood you correctly, you said six to 16. Did I hear that correctly? Yes. When I was 16 years old, my mother, as I said before, she was a nurse of 50 years, but she worked night shifts in the ICU. And so until age 16, when we were able to stay on our own, would stay with other people. And that's when it would happen. It was basically almost daily for all those years, for about 10 years. You know, modern day. Clearly, it's a, a different story as when you're six, when you were back six and we were when we were young and all that. Along the way, did you like try to tell someone? Did you were you like just so overly ashamed you didn't say anything? Were you trying to figure it out? Like what? I was afraid of my mother, like I said, in the beginning of our childhood was very uh, physically abusive. I was afraid of that. I was afraid of the abuser. I was afraid that nobody would believe me. And then I didn't know if it was right or wrong. That was the first encounter that I had of sexual nature. And so my brain, when you don't know and something like that happens to you, I think that your brain's telling you that that's a normal thing. So in my brain, it's like a normal thing. I'm, I'm thinking, you know, this is normal. This is just the way that it is. Then as I was going through life and growing up, I, I was like, well, other people, this doesn't happen to other people. So I felt like I was a mistake. I felt like this doesn't happen to nobody but me. There must be something wrong with me that this is happening to me, not only by one person, but three or four or five, even people within the church and the youth group. You know, when I was about 13 or 14, it was even in the church. And so it's just that it's hard to really explain, but you just take on this feeling that that's who you are, you know, and that's why the book is. It's such a powerful testimony of so many people are living lives. You know, they're living a life that God did not create them to live that life. I don't regret anything that's happened to me. I don't regret anything. It's made me who I am today. It's made me um, the man of God that I've been created to be. And I'm able to reach people that others can't. You know, we talked about Lamisa Prison. And the first day, I was going to just tell my whole story. And I, I held back because there were 360 inmates, men. And I didn't want to tell them what I'd gone through. The next day, God said, you go and tell your story. And I went, God, my wife, I said, God told me I got to tell it all. And when I told my whole story, it was amazing of the men that came up to me that said, that is what I went through. That's exactly what happened to me. That's why I'm here. And I was just amazed, you know, and I'm, I'm so thankful I was obedient and speaking out because there were so many there and the, their issues stem from being molested as a child. And there they are in prison doing life sentences, some of them, you know? And so for someone to actually speak that out, I was pretty happy that I was obedient because I did not want to do it. You know, God wants you to do such stuff sometimes that you just don't want to do. There's 360 men sitting there, you know, all tatted up and, scary you know and the last thing i want to do is go in there and tell them hey you know i used to be gay or something and 
But God, oh man, he just blessed that time. There was altar call. People were just coming up and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, you know, and they've been through the same stuff, similar things. So I know that there's a, there's a, such a darkness in that lifestyle. We have family members right now that believe they're girls and they're boys and boys that think they're girls and on both sides of our family. So it's just everywhere. Like I said, it's such a process. You have to in this day and age, it's so popular, it's the end thing to be that way. It's difficult, but there's those that hear the story and they're like, you know what? That's exactly what I'm going through. And if this guy can do it, I know I can. That's the basis of my whole sharing my testimony and everything. I used to feel shame when I would give my testimony and I used to wouldn't get into it. But now I'm just like, I'm going to flow with it. I'm going to go with it. If God tells me to talk about it, I'm going to. And so that's what I do. Now, what I want to tie into this is if, again, if I heard correctly, you sort of grew up in the church situation. Your parent, your grandparents, excuse me, uh, kept it going for you. And then you later found out around 13, if I remember that, who your biological father was, who was active in the church as well. When you actually found that out. What was the reaction? Was it like an anger? Was it a fear? Was there a shame? Like, how did you go through that when you realized what had happened? When my mother got pregnant with me, he had moved to another location in Texas. She actually went to nursing school there. He had left the church when this happened, when she, when she got pregnant with me. She moved there to where he was to go to nursing school. And they hooked up then. He wasn't in the church when I was growing up. It wasn't like that. Once I did find that out, I would call him and try to talk to him, and he denied I was his. Actually, when I was 21, before I went to Dallas, and one of the reasons in going to Dallas was I did finally get to meet him. I met him at a Walmart, and my mother had one picture of him, and it was when he was in the Navy, I believe, or the Air Force. And so I'm looking for this guy in this picture. Well, you know, he, it's 20 years later. And so this guy comes up to me in Walmart. <laughs> and my, my grandparents are there and my great aunt and uncle. And they're all looking around the cereal boxes and the tuna and all this and that for when we meet. And uh, we got in the vehicle and he denied I was his all the way until I met his brother, which would have been my uncle. And when I met my uncle, my uncle told him, he said, there's no denying this is your son. He said, yes, yes, he is. He's mine. And I was like, no, I'm not. Cause he broke my heart, you know, telling me I wasn't his. And I had all these big things built up in my life. You know, I built my life around not knowing my father. And, you know, that's one of the reasons it was so hard to trust and depend on God because my earthly father was not there for me. He never lifted a finger. He never acknowledged me. He never nothing. You know, and so I think sometimes in my past, especially being able to trust in God and depend on God was difficult because of my earthly father. Well, you know, that's a question I actually wanted to get into is that as you were going through the issues of growing up, you were getting into drugs, alcohol, the gay lifestyle, prison and just wreck of a life at that time. I would assume that by growing up in the church, you had some semblance of faith somewhere, mustard seed maybe, or there was something like kind of nagging in the back of your head. You know, 
I mean, let's be honest. When you're when you're getting yourself into a sin, you feel it. Your discernment fires up. You feel the tap on your shoulder saying, "Don't do it." And you're rebellious, and you do it anyway. Yeah, let's be. We're all you know. We all know what we're talking about here. But throughout your un, until your, I'll just say this conversion experience you had, just for lack of a better term. What was your level of faith like? What was were you getting that little tap on your shoulder? What was what was happening? We were in the Baptist church. I was saved when I was eight years old. I loved Jesus. I was singing in the choir. I mean, I, you nobody you could hear nobody else but me. David was loud and proud of Jesus. I loved Jesus with all of my heart. I think the day that I accepted Jesus when I was eight years old, the devil put an X on my back, and that's when the really hard stuff of the molestation and sexual abuse came into play. Is when when I got saved. And is when my mother started to have us stay at other places with these people that would molest me sexually. I knew that it was wrong after a period of time because nobody else was going through that. I didn't see anybody else going through that but me. And I knew it was wrong. I was brought up in the church. My grandfather, the old man, it didn't matter if it was rain, snow, what it was, 530 every morning he was there drinking his coffee and reading his Bible. You know, he would work out in the yard in the garden. I would go and follow him around. He was a quiet man, but he was a wise man. You know, I aspired to be as good of a man as he is. And um, I can remember that those times. And I know that's important now in my adulthood, you know, that I stay in the Word. My wife and I, every morning, we're in the Word. We're in prayer. We do communion. We know each other. We do everything we can because when we go out there and do ministry, I'm currently working at a homeless shelter. I do case management. I deal with some people and some demons. And so I got to be I got to be ready for whatever comes my way cuz we see some stuff there, let me tell you. You know, it's through seeing my grandfather be in the church and the steadiness and my mother kept us in church as well, you know. Every Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday night, we were always there. That root of faith was installed in us. And so that's where that comes from, but I did know it was wrong. I'm going to say about 13, you know, about the time when my mother told us who our father was and stuff. I knew then that it was wrong, but I didn't understand if it's wrong, then why does it keep happening? Like, what's wrong with me that it keeps happening? So it was a conflicting, it was conflicting years. It was hard to understand. I knew it was wrong. I didn't know how to change it, you know, and then 16, when I'm able to stay by myself, it wasn't happening anymore. The damage was done. And so, you know, I still was in church and everything else, but, you know, and then going to jail, being raped, you know, I've been in some really crazy situations and really ugly, ugliness. And, you know, I thought that's who I was. I didn't expect any different. If you you think something's normal, you don't think any different, you know. Like I was saying, you know, during the years with the, the partner that I had for five years, I couldn't even stand to be in my skin. I knew I was living in sin. I couldn't even stand to be in my skin. I was so paranoid and so afraid of just who I had become. I was a monster, you know, and I didn't know how to get out of that. But I knew there was God. I, I believed in God. Like I said, I was saved when I was eight years old. I just went down the wrong path. And I think God allows us to go through those things to build us up to be the man that God has created us to be or the woman of God, that we can use the struggles of our life to empower others of the strength that Christ gives us when he comes into our lives and changes us from the inside out. So now another kind of silly question I have, I guess, 
when you had attempted suicide with the pills and the psych meds and all that stuff, and you said you died on your front step, sometimes people say that during that death experience or the coma experience, they have a spiritual experience. Did you experience anything like that or did it happen in an instant you came out of it? What was what happened during that? No, that didn't. When I came out of it, like I said, my mother was there praying at the end of my bed. It didn't really phase me. I was kind of pissed. I'm sorry, that may be a strong word there, but he said to be real, so I'm being real. But I was kind of mad that I was still alive. I didn't know what I was going to do. What had happened was the guy put me into a some kind of a facility and just left, okay? So I climbed over the fence, walked out of this facility, climbed over the fence, went to the house, called my cousin who lives in Dallas, and he came and got me. And so then my mother came and got me from there. But I don't think my mind was right at that time because you got to remember I've been doing drugs for over 10 years and really heavily those five years when I was in that relationship. As far as having a spiritual experience, no, there was none of that. And that suicide attempt, now the one in prison was when the first time I've ever heard God speak to me. And when he said to me, David, why are you trying to end what I'm trying to begin? And I was fading in and out of life. I didn't know if I was going to die or if I was going to live. I was kind of in and out of consciousness. And so to hear something that powerful in such a loud, a demonic place as I was in, I knew that was God. And that was a spiritual experience that I still just get goosebumps when I think of it that day because I surrendered. I was tired of running. You know, I, I figured out through the years that I'd been running all my life. From my calling. You know, I think we do that sometimes. We get so into our sin, it's just normal to us. But I've been running for so long and to be able to surrender. Now, yes, I was in prison for three years, discipleship two years, and then two years homeless, smoking meth. But you know, it's grace and mercy is enough. You know, he saved me off that street. It took going through what I did. I'd worked at a homeless shelter as an assistant director on Skid Row. The Jonah Project, I got to experience homelessness, hardcore. I got to work with those individuals. I got to do street ministry. So God built me up during that time, you know, and um, I can look back and just say, you know, I'm thankful that we have salvation, that we have Christ that gives us freedom. You know, I've been freed from homosexuality. I've been freed from addiction. I've been freed from bondage that some people will never even be able to understand. But to those that are in that bondage that do understand, there is a way out, and that's through Jesus Christ. So what I wanted to know was, is that you mentioned earlier that it's interesting, it begins where it ends sometimes, and you went into prison ministry after getting out of there, and it sounds like the guys were generally really receptive to you, which is wonderful. As you're out on the street and you're preaching and you're doing street ministry and so on, do you still get the opportunity to preach to the gay community or to the drug community? And in doing so, are they receptive to you as well? Like, is there one group that really locks onto this or is some that's real resistant? Like, what's what's the temperature of that looking like? Well, the, now with the gay thing, like I said, it's so trendy. It's so popular. It's if you're not gay, then you're not nobody. You know, it's just the way it is right now. They're a harder generation to reach. They're, they're very, it's very difficult. I've got terrible friends that think they are that way, that have, they know my story and everything else, but they just don't want to come to the conclusion that 
that they're not that way. It was a process. It took me nine years to overcome this, to totally be delivered. Each person is at a different level, but it's very difficult to reach those individuals in that lifestyle. Now, the drug addicts, we have all oh, so many spiritual children. You know, we have a rehab here in Carlsbad. We go and minister there. We've been to the prisons. Like I said, they're very receptive in the prisons to the gay lifestyle, the drug addict. Yes, we have a big response with that. We've got a pen pal program where we write people in prison and they write to us. It's kind of died down right now, but hopefully it'll pick back up. But as far as the, um, like I said, like the gay agenda things, they're very hard to reach. And I think it's because it's so accepted. I think it's because, you know, you go to psychiatry and say, I think I'm gay. Well, that's okay. You know, and you get this false hope that it's normal and it's okay. And so they're difficult to reach. Now, the drug addicts, like I said, we have so many spiritual children. My wife is very pathetic and she's able to reach people and see into people that, you know, that I'm not able to. So as a team, we can really get in there and just really minister to them on a level. She's been through so much herself. You know, she was a drug addict too. So together, we there's not many people that we can't reach, you know, on some level. Now, the, the Mesa prison, we had the opportunity to go in there. And the first year that we went in, I actually emceed and it was awesome. We had a hundred salvations and I got to baptize 28 men. And, you know, I got to talk about uh, the sexual abuse and how that had just put a darkness over my life. And, you know, I think in, in that lifestyle, it's so dark and it's so hard to get out of that. I mean, it took me nine years. You know, and so I understand the process of that. It's not something that just changes overnight. You have a way of thinking about yourself. And even with a drug addict, you know, I've got a friend that he's done really good. He got married. He was on drugs and he's been clean and sober, I think, six or seven years. And he just relapsed. You never know when that's going to happen. And But God's grace and mercy covers us. You know, if we can just keep getting back up and showing up and, and following through. And we'll have people that will call us and we won't even know who they are, you know, and my wife will minister to them on the phone or, you know, we we're usually side by side, except when I'm working, we do um, marriage counseling, we do individual counseling, whatever's needed out there, because we just want to give people hope. When you're a drug addict or maybe you're living the gay lifestyle, you know, you can lose a sense of hope. you know, that nothing's ever going to change. And what we do is we bring it to the table that, yes, Look at us. If we did it, you can. It's kind of funny because there's a, a time when my wife was really having her addiction. She was real thin and looking like a skeleton. And then I have a picture like that, too. Well, then we put a picture of us now, and you can just see the transformational power of Jesus Christ. You can see Jesus on us. And if you can see Jesus on us, guess what? You can have that Jesus. You can have that same hope. You can have those. It doesn't matter what you've done. He's right there. He wants you to let him have control. He wants you to allow him to love you. And, you know, we're learning and to trust in God, to depend on God. We're learning that, you know, without him, if we go out there in that world and we don't armor up every morning, we're going to be in a wreck. Like the divorce, you know, that was a time that, well, all our expectations, everything had been taken. I was down in my health. I had um, 
kidney stones they had put a stent in me my body was rejecting it i couldn't eat i couldn't sleep i was a mess i got really thin i felt like i was gonna die i had to go to the hospital every day twice to be pumped with antibiotics this is during our divorce and i'm losing my dream of the ministry i'm losing my dream of just doing what god has called us to do i've lost my wife my health is you know shot i felt like job it was my job season but you know what? God worked on us and I never gave up hope. I never gave up because I know what he did for my life time and time again. He's going to do it again. So four months later, we got married and it's just been on since then. So, you know, there is hope. There is hope. You were talking about losing hope and the enemy does this thing and it's in the Bible. It's called snares, right? And what a snare is, it's a form of a trap where once you get into it, you don't necessarily realize it at first. And the deeper you get into it, the tighter it gets on you. So it's a gradual squeeze over time until the life is choked out of you, basically. That's what a snare is. What the enemy does is he not only does losing hope, as that's part of it, but a big topic that I'd like to get into is shame. Because once you have that element of sin that you've committed and there's the shame of it, now he keys right in on that. Because if you come clean, you come clean about it. Now you got a problem. Otherwise, you got to stay in it. And then he pushes you into more. And it just becomes that that compounding kind of thing of how he controls people. So that's a big thing. Out of all the stuff you've been through, there's a lot of elements that would bring someone shame. It's just kind of the, the nature of the beast here. How does someone that has been through some of the elements that you've been through or has gotten themselves in a mess of some kind, and are dealing with the shame. How are they starting to overcome this? How do they get out of this? What What's step one? How do you start breaking the shell? Like, Give us some practical steps that you can suggest to people. Well, the first thing we have to remember is, you know, when we know Christ, all we need to do is ask for forgiveness. And the thing is, especially in that lifestyle, okay, uh, the gay lifestyle, I knew what I was doing was wrong, and I kept on doing it. But there comes a point where you have to know that it's sin. You have to understand that what you're doing is not what God would have you to do. And what you have to do is you have to ask for forgiveness. When you do that sin, you have to ask for forgiveness. You have to get up and move forward, ask for forgiveness. You know, God not only forgives, but he forgets. We are the ones that are reminded and feel shame and guilt for something God's already forgiven and forgotten. We're the ones that remember that, and the devil is the one that puts the shame on us to try to have us to remember something God's forgotten. But you just keep getting up, and if you mess up, you ask for that forgiveness, and you keep going up, and you keep going up. you got to chase after God the way you chase after the drug or the way you chase after your sexual immorality or whatever the sin may be. You've got to chase after God the way you did that stronghold. And that's where you get free, uh, true deliverance. I didn't stop. I didn't give up. I kept asking for forgiveness every time. Like I said, it would be three months and I wouldn't have a thought. And then boom, one day I'd have a thought and act out in that sin and, and have those lustful thoughts. And then I wouldn't even feel like going to church. I feel that shame. But I've learned that God not only forgives, but he forgets. And the only one that's going to remind you of that is the enemy. Because he doesn't want you to overcome that stronghold. He wants you in that bondage where he can control you and manipulate you. So you've got to keep getting up and not give up. So many people wallow around in their sin and they just can't get up. It's because they give up. They give up. They, 
they're not uh, accomplishing what they would like to have as an outcome fast enough. You know, we want things instantly in the society. And if it ain't instant, then they're going to stay stuck in it. But you have to keep getting up, ask for forgiveness every time you do it, and keep doing it and believing that God's going to deliver you. I believe that with all my heart that he was going to deliver me. And then when I would act out and sin in that, in that way, or even with drugs, even when I relapsed, you know, I knew God would use that for his glory. See, my shame is bringing him fame. My story is his glory. Because now I am, I am saying to people, look what God has done. Look what God has done in my life. I was a drug dealer. I was a drug lord. I was a, I did gay porn. I danced on pool tables in a gay club. I prostituted my body. I did all these things. But you know what? I have no shame in that. Because today, it gives God glory. Because God changed me. God transformed me. It wasn't in my own strength. It was in his strength. And in his strength, he makes all things good. And so I would just encourage anyone that has given up that hope because they just stay in that sin to ask for forgiveness and to give God a chance. You know, you've tried everything else. You know, you get yourselves in wrecks all over and over and over again. And if you keep doing the same thing over and over and think you're going to get different results, you're not. But if you can ask for forgiveness and repentance, and then the next time you ask for forgiveness and you keep asking for that forgiveness when you've acted out on that sin, that's what's going to bring you closer to Christ. That's what's going to get you delivered. That's what's going to give you the hope that you need in your life to succeed and to live an abundant life. Right now, I live an abundant life. I'm not ashamed of any of my past. Like I said, when I was in the prison, God had told me to tell my story the first day and I wouldn't do it. But once I did, you know what? Many people came up to me with that same thing happening to them, with them being molested as a child. And the fact that they were in prison stems from what happened to them as a child. You know, by the age of nine, our morals are set in life. Whatever's been going on, you know, we have a mind that our morals are set by that age. And by the age of 13, you know, is about the age of accountability. So it's good to get it right you know, and to allow Christ to give you that mercy, to give you that grace. And a lot of people don't feel they deserve it. A lot of people, they have self-hatred because of the things that they've done. And that's what the enemy wants to do is entrap them. I like what Jensen Franklin has a sermon, the Python, and it's an illustration of how the Python just constricts around you and just sucks the life out of you. And that's what the enemy does with the strongholds is he was sucking the life out of me. He was literally killing me. And, and when I was living that lifestyle and living in drugs and with the drugs came the demons and things that weren't there and just uh, ugliness, you know, but, you know, God changes our ashes into beauty. And he made a beautiful thing out of what I once was. I was an ugly person. I had no hope. But, you know, you were talking about having the seed of faith and of hope. I did have that in me, but I just did not apply those things until I think we have to go through things. It's a process and we have to learn who God is. We have to learn to trust and depend on him. That's what I would just say as far as those that don't have hope is to not give up, you know, and to love yourself and to love God with all your heart, not on your own understanding. You know, we have an understanding of who we think we are and we need to take on that identity of who Christ says we are.
What I wanted to add, what just kind of came to in my heart a little bit, I just want to share quickly to listeners and anybody in general, not only asking forgiveness, clear first step, very good, but there is a huge element of at some point you have to forgive yourself too. You have to be on the other side of that. I, I think that's huge, number one. You know, something that I like to remind people of is that this this new covenant, we're so fortunate to be under this new covenant because it's a covenant of forgiveness. Before, during, and after your sin, you're forgiven. And people are like, you mean my future sins? Still, I'm like, yeah, relative to 2,000 years ago when he was on a cross, your sin now is future at that point. It's relative. Yes, future. He's that good. Yes, he can handle it. You know what I mean? And so, listeners, I just want to drop on you, if you want to just take a couple notes, is Psalm 103.12, Jeremiah 33.8, Isaiah 43.25, and I'm going to end with Hebrews 8.12, which says, I will, for I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Remember their sins no more. Now, clearly, you don't want to just cherry pick individual verses, but that's just a little signpost, a little something to get you started. Go dig out the gold and tell me what you find there. Maybe that'll kind of get you going for that. But as you were alluding to, is that God right there says, I will remember their sins no more, That referring to the wickedness and unrighteous, as he says in other translations. But it's the enemy that keeps bringing it up. It's you, as in your carnal mind, that keeps bringing it up. You know, God's already moved on and is ready to get on to the next thing and help you through it. You know, you just got to make those connections. So hopefully that kind of helps along the way there and just gives you a little something to work with as you're processing all this information. So David, tell me now the book, how it came out. You mentioned something about the dedication to it. So give us a full rundown on the book project. The book project, it's, it's funny. I've written this book about three or four times. And when I was writing it, you talk about unforgiveness. I was naming each person that had done what they had done to me. And I was very carnal minded in it. It took some time to finally get the actual what God was trying to get onto the paper because I had unforgiveness in my heart. And during the process of writing this book, I, I realized I had not forgiven my father. I had not forgiven myself. I had not forgiven the people that had done the things that he did to me. So it was a transformation for me because I didn't know I had so much unforgiveness in my heart. And so really it was administered to me, this book did, because it helped me to see that I had to forgive my dad. For not being there. I had to forgive those people that molested me. But most importantly, like you said a while ago, is I had to forgive myself. See, I felt guilty. I felt like the things that happened to me, I deserved those things. You know, and so it was a real relief for me to be able to finally get this into print. Now, I printed a few years ago, but, you know, the story is still as powerful as it was then. It's still available on Amazon and Kindle ebooks. We also have a program where you can write into us and I autograph it and it's a, a little cheaper. You can save there. I wanted to read the dedication just because it's so powerful. And it says, I, David Thomas, would like to dedicate my autobiography to every single one of you whose shoes I've worn, to every single one of you whose life I've once lived. From the depth of my heart, with all my love, I want every single one of you, the poor, the homeless, the addict, the prisoner, the unloved, Forgotten, invisible, broken, lost, abused, sexually, mentally, the learning disabled, the hopeless, faithless, those who question their sexual identity. To these individuals, there is still hope in what we've seen in their hopeless situation. You may be asking yourself, who does this guy think that he is to make such a bold statement? 
he doesn't know me, but I do know you because I have been you. And to know how to find this hope in your hopeless situations, I guess you will need to read my story. So I think that's a pretty powerful statement on, you know, when we are trying to overcome things in our life, to be able to relate to somebody really is a helpful thing because someone that's not been through these things, if I was this guy that had never done none of these things, I wouldn't be able to reach the people that I'm reaching. So this is just a book for deliverance. It's a powerful illustration of God's grace and mercy, you know, and it took a long time. I had the whole book written and my laptop got hacked and I lost it. So I had to rewrite it all again. But it was really my wife that, you know, before we were married, even on the phone before we met each other, that really encouraged me. And she keeps me in check. She keeps me kind of equaled out, you know, and um, like I was saying, you know, God knew that I needed to be loved. And my wife, is, she's a beautiful woman and she's just really poured into me. And that's the reason the book's out. If I just tried to do this by myself, I could have not done it. But, you know, God allowed her to pet talk me and to get me through it. So that was pretty much the way it went. I actually, on the back of the book, there's a picture of the ocean, uh, the rocks on the ocean. And that's actually my campsite where I lived for two years. So it's on the back of the book. And it's written in the sand that says, he rewrote my story when I opened the book of my heart for him to see. And so it's just a powerful testimony of the goodness of God and what God can do in any situation. And like I said, I've worn many shoes, many shoes, and I don't regret none of it because you know what? My story gives him glory. And that's what it's all about. So as we're wrapping up towards the end of our program here today, For someone who's listened to your story, for someone who is sort of teetering on the fence, maybe they're not sure, maybe they're going through all these things you went through as well. If you could sort of summarize like a single message to them of what they need to know, what they need to do, what is your final official message to someone trying to get out of this mess? What the message would be was for those that are on the fence, you know, those that maybe the story has touched or maybe something in your spirit man to that you need to change is to not give up to move forward and to always know you're worth it we are worth it we have the enemy and god that wants our soul and when you're when you live for god and you have god in your life you live an abundant life and the things of the past will fall off of you and they will you have to trust you have to trust a lot of people have an issue with trust but learn to trust in God, not lean on your own understandings of who you are. Take on the identity of Christ. And it may not be easy. It wasn't easy for me. It took nine years for me to be delivered. But don't give up on the process. There's a reason in everything that you go through. And God wants to be leader of your life. He wants to be in control of your life. And let me tell you, I live the high life in Jesus Christ now. I used to be high on drugs and miserable. But I live a high life. I have a joy of the Lord, which is my strength, that I can get up each day and know who I am. And what I've done, what God's done in me, He will do in you. Just trust and believe with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. You know, one of the reasons we do formats and programs like this is because people need to know that just because, okay, you have a podcast, I'm nobody special, or just because somebody's in ministry. It doesn't mean they're anybody special or they're perfect or they have it all together. 
all every single one of us, everybody in ministry, everybody preaching and podcasting and worship team, we're all a bunch of uh, kind of messed up people doing messed up things, but we're doing our best. You know, we're doing what we can. We're sort of trying to, it's almost like the GPS. We're trying to get to a destination. We fall off of it. It recalculates and gets us back where we need to go. And it's just a matter of finishing the ride and finishing the race. So I'll just add to that. If you are going through any of those situations and you're trying to pull it together and get out of it and make a change, this is why we do this show. And of course, anytime you're welcome to email us at podcast at dominionfire.com and I will put you in contact with whoever you need to and David's ministry and we will do our best to help you. I mean, we're like I said, we're all just kind of, I don't know, we're bungling all through this together, I guess is the best way we put it. So we're just doing our best. So David, would you please, as we close up here, would you do a closing prayer for our audience, again, for people in this situation or anything that kind of comes to your heart or mind? And would you just pray it out for us and take us to the amen, please? Father, we just come to you right now, Lord. Father, we know that you're in the story, Father. We give the story to you for your glory, Father, for any individual that's out there right now, Lord, whatever it is that they're going through, Lord. Let them know, Lord, that you're there, Lord. All they need to do is call upon your name and be saved, Father, that you have an abundance of life for them, that they are men and God. They are man of God and woman of God, Lord, and they can be all you've created them to be, Lord. I was just speaking an anointing flow, Father, that the words that have been said today are not to glorify sin, Lord, but to glorify you. For you've done these things, Lord, and what you've done in me, Lord, you want to do in everyone, Father. Just bring people to a place of repentance, Lord, and a, a place to where, Lord, that they can ask for that forgiveness, Lord, and they can keep moving forward, and they can overcome. We are more than conquerors through you, Jesus Christ. And we give you this day, we give you this story for your glory, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to get to minister today. Thank you, Lord, that goes through the airways, Lord, that lives will be touched that people will open up their hearts to receive the free gift of eternal life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The book is called I Lived a Lie by David Thomas. And in the write-up, it says a roller coaster life. Well, after hearing this, that's the whole theme park being brought to you. <laughs> so, David, if people would like to contact you, find out more about what you do, check out your ministry, grab a copy of the book, what is your website, contact, social media, give us the full listing, please. It's David Thomas. It's David, D-A-B-E-D. It's also David and Kathy Ministries. We have several pages on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We do have a website. The short version is dkministry.com. Also, our phone number is 575-725-7898. And if anybody needs to get in touch with us, we're all over social media. We have quite a large following. It's pretty easy to find us on there. Like I said, my name, I think I'm the only David with an E in, in the world, <laughs> but uh, it's pretty easy to find. So yes, and if you have any questions, feel free to give us a call or hook up with us on social media. We do offer a autographed copy of the book and it, it's a little less than $10 for it, but um, you can call or comment or message us on Facebook, whatever, however you want to do it but we can get that sent out to you. All right, listeners, there you have it. Again, if you're in the situation, if you're in the mess, we I'm just going to tell you that the way the world is going right now, things are going to probably get a lot worse before they get better. You may want to start getting out of this now before it really hits. <laughs> I'm ju just throwing that out there at you. Uh, anytime, again, dominionfire.com is the website. 
We're on all the social medias. Just search Dominion Fire and you'll find us. On Telegram, it's telegram or t.me forward slash Dominion Fire HQ. If you want to just have a conversation and chat with uh, some of us that are in there, you're welcome to do that. And you can also email us if you have questions or follow up or can't seem to find David. It's podcast at dominionfire.com. So make sure you check that out. Check out all of our other episodes. And we, as always, David, we appreciate you being here. Thank you for being open and raw with us and just sharing your story. We definitely appreciate it. Listeners, we thank you for being here as always. And as we always say at our ministry, boom, goes Yeshua. And we shall see you next time. Thank you, guys.